0: Hello, and welcome to Season 2 of We Can Be Heroes with Paul Burston. This is the podcast in which my guests are invited to wax lyrical about their heroes and heroines, people who've inspired them and helped shape their lives. I'm an author and journalist, and there are many people I consider heroes, both real and fictional, famous and not so famous. Among them is the late, great David Bowie. And each one says something about me because the people we regard as heroes often reveal who we are, our strengths and our weaknesses, the struggles we faced and the times we've shown courage we didn't even know we had. It's been said before, but it bears repeating, not all heroes wear capes. We can all be heroes, even if it is just for one day.
1: I was lucky enough to actually literally experience Golden Age really with the tail end of it as a, as a little boy. She's walking around in New York, like the most high-profile recluse. You know, she didn't go and live in a hut in Sweden. In fact, the very last we see of Garbo is in a gay porn film. Like David Bowie, I've had to put a mask on to be able to really express who I really am. Because I think growing up, it was not okay to be who I was. My parents were literally horrified that I was doing drag. I'm quite happy to be a sort of shapeshifter. I never really felt like a man. I used to dress up like a man. but People, you know, were terrified of me. I looked like a thug until they walked past and I was singing sort of The Man That Got
0: Away or something. (laughs) That's going to be our teaser quote. My guest for the final episode this season... Is the man behind the singing sensation that is Miss Hope Springs? He is, of course, Ty Jeffries. Born into a show business family, his father was the actor Lionel Jeffries, showbiz was in Ty's blood from an early age. Join us as we discuss which musical and Hollywood heroines literally gave him hope. It's happening. It's finally happening. (laughs) We've been trying to pin each other down for a while. I'm just so pleased that we're finally able to have this conversation time. Yes,
1: me too. Sorry it's taken so long.
0: Well, you're a very, very busy man-woman. I wanted to start by just reminding you how the podcast works. People come on and they talk about people who've inspired them and they can be real people in their lives. They can be famous people. They can be groups of people. They can be even fictional characters, in fact. So who is the first person or group of people that you'd like to talk about and why have you chosen them? The first group of people is a group of old
1: school female impersonators from the United States, specifically well, America and Canada. So they're entertainers really from the 60s and 70s who perform a kind of drag that we just don't have anymore apart from me, (laughs) probably. Maybe this is why I love them so much and was inspired by them. So I'm talking specifically for people who may know about them. Jim Bailey, the great female impersonator and vocalist, Uh, Charles Pierce, who's a marvellous female impersonator and comic, just the most brilliant hysterical comic. And Craig Russell, who was again a sort of conglomerate of all the the women he admired. Um, And he was from Canada and uh, performed mostly, I think, in the 70s. Charles Pierce was in... The movie Twitch Song Trilogy is one of the drag artists and working in the club. So people may remember him from that if if they haven't seen his uh, video clips and things that are still out there. And Craig Russell made a couple of movies in the 70s called Outrageous. I mean, I was in my teens and would sneak out of school to go and see these films of his and was absolutely immersed in them. And I got turned on to Jim Bailey because my dad had his album, which I'm thinking that's kind of interesting. (laughs) I mean, dad was great friends with Danny LaRue, and they worked together in uh, did the Hello, Dolly together in the West End. So I got my love of a certain kind of drag performance. Well, it must be from dad. I mean, he did a bit of drag. He was in *Saint Trinian's*, one of the *Saint Trinian's* movies, in drag. So it was definitely a creative line going through my childhood. Uh, to be, to know personally people like Daniel LaRue, to find that fabulously glamorous double album. Uh, is a sort of book, uh, what they call gatefold double album with. Photograph of Jim Bailey on the front looking very, very beautiful, and then inside all the women that he vocally impersonated so brilliantly. Streisand, which of course was exquisite, and Judy Garland, and uh, Peggy Lee he did as well. And I got a chance to see him, uh, I think the late 80s when he was over and I saw him do Judy Garland at the London Palladium with full orchestra and uh, the marvellous uh, introduction, which was, they did the big overture and ladies and gentlemen, Miss Judy Garland and the spotlight goes around the stage waiting for her to come out and she doesn't come out. And they do this like <laughs> three times. Um, and then of course he would come out looking like Judy and, and singing like Judy in the most incredible way. And then I saw him, like, maybe three or four days later in Brighton at the, uh, I think it was the Theatre Royal, doing Barbra Streisand. Just the whole evening, full orchestra, and he, you know, the little table with the teapot and the teacups, and uh, the incredible vocal impersonation to transport you in a way, in a way seeing, and at the essence of the great artists, uh, but through the lens of drag and any kind of impersonation does something, doesn't it? It's sort of, it's like a mirror image or something, or it's a, it's a magnifying glass on certain elements. It's an extraordinary experience, I think. I think drag has changed so very much in the last 10 years since I started doing Miss Hope Springs in the 90s. Before I was born, if you believe my Facebook
0: age. Those shows you just mentioned, they coincided with the start of my career as a journalist because I interviewed Jim for Capital Gay, as was. And I was very young and didn't know anything about him or what he was doing. And he kept impressing upon me in the interview that it wasn't like a typical drag performance. And to me, although I had grown up watching Danny LaRue on television... Most of my experience of drag at that point had been going to the two brewers and seeing kind of working men's club drag, you know, like people singing, not performing as characters particularly. And I went to see him and it completely blew my mind. On a previous episode of the podcast, Susie Boyd, who wrote a book called My Judy Garland Life, in which she explores her relationship with Judy Garland, she also talks about Jim Bailey and she talks about sitting with him backstage, as he's transforming himself into Judy, she recounted what an extraordinary sensation it was that you could see Jim disappear and this other person appear, that he actually became the character like a method actor would.
1: Yeah, I think that's what I love about them. It's a a, a sort of an immersion of their own personality to the work, and it is character acting. All, I'm sure, would have made fine, straight, in inverted commas, actors, because it takes a lot of artistry to be able to do what they do. I think uh, those three female impersonators, they started me off, (laughs) really.
0: You mentioned your father. Your father obviously was Lionel. Did you ever discuss this with him, this this interest in these performers? We watched Jim Bailey, I'm sure, on television
1: because that was one of the things I think was so interesting about that time. There was more drag on television, mainstream television, than there is today. So we would watch Jim Bailey. I'm sure Charles Pierce. I don't think Craig Russell because Craig was a little bit more I don't know, edgy, I suppose. We did, we talked about it because it was part of just family life, really. Although, sadly, it was very different when I came out as a drag artist um, in the 90s when I did my first show at the King's Head Theatre, which was actually a, a sort of tribute to Barbara Streisand. It was Miss Hope Springs Sing Streisand. And I did it as as Miss Hope Springs telling her life story. And it was very, very parallel with Barbara. And it was the fact that Barbara stole all Hope's ideas. She even <laughs> even stole Elliot Gould from Hope. So it, it was just a funny, <laughs> a funny take on it. It was the first thing I ever did. But by that time, my parents were literally horrified that I was doing drag. I think they were embarrassed. And um, that was sad. It changed when my father passed away and I was established at the Crazy Cox and had had some success. Strangely, things changed and, and my mother and my sisters, who were so judgmental about it, started coming to my shows and saying and it's marvellous and inviting their friends along. I could have done with that when I was 16, you know. It was a little too little too late uh, not that I want to sound bitter and twisted, but it's so easy. It does leave a, a scar. I think that when you're yeah. a young person finding your way and being true, very true to yourself and your ideals uh, and your sexuality, and your personality, um, to have people want to put a lid on you and screw it tight is is it's painful and and it always I think it leaves a shadow. But then it makes us who we are, part of who we are, isn't it? And overcoming that. And-
0: it's interesting when you're talking about how much drag there was on TV when you were younger, because when I had David McCalmont on the on the podcast, he surprised mm-hmm. me with some of his choices of icons and heroes. And one of them was Danny LaRue. And he said people always expect him to talk about Stevie Wonder and people like that. But actually it was Danny LaRue that was one of the first inspirations for him. And on the good old days... Was on there all the time and
1: always making appearances, fabulous variety shows and so forth. But then we had also the great hinge and bracket character comedians who created personas and and a whole world that you that you became absorbed in. They took you into the, their
0: world. I was introduced to Miss Hope by another person who's been a guest on the podcast, which is Alexis Gregory, who has played me on stage (laughs) and brought me to see you on stage. And I didn't know quite what to expect, although he'd said a few things. I knew it was going to be funny. I knew it was going to be polished. And it was all of those things. But what I wasn't prepared for was that there was, there was a real emotional journey. There was so much pathos and it was so moving. So one minute I was laughing and laughing at and with Hope. And the next minute I was actually heartbroken on her behalf. I think that's one of the great great things about the character is that you're able to draw out of the audience all kinds of emotions. There's a bit of a sucker punch in there. It's very moving. It's a very moving show.
1: Thank you. Thank you. I mean, I think that's, I personally feel that's important to do as an artist. One of the other groups includes people like Bette Midler, who I feel does that as as an artist again? I was sneaking away when I was like I think fifteen, sixteen. I snuck to the London Palladium again to see Bette Midland when she was over here. I think it was the first time she was over here in the late seventies. And you know, I went in. As we said, I went in County and I came out kinky. It was three. I don't know how many people in the Palladium. Was it two or three thousand people in there? And there was this this gay camaraderie. I'd never been in Rome with so many amazing gay men of that era you know it really blew my mind the warmth of love laughter and again the pathos that she so brilliantly portrays yeah it's it ticks all the boxes for me and and again going back to Jim Bailey I'm not so much Charles Pierce because he was a broad was broad comedy but definitely Jim Bailey explored that that fine line between pathos and broad comedy and big laughs and then moments of of real tenderness. So that's, that's what I hope I do.
0: I wonder how much there's a difference in the aesthetic between British artistry in this respect in terms of drag and American because all the british ones i can think of even the ones that i've admired greatly like lily savage and regina fong who sadly no longer with us but i used to love regina fong it was just for laughs there was never pathos there was never sadness and Mm -hmm. a lot of the american drag that i've seen of this sort of ilk reminds me of companies like the ridiculous theater company where the theater literally turns from being absurd to being sublime really quickly Neil Bartlett's work has that element, I think. Neil Bartlett does that. But in terms of drag, I can't think of many people from this country that, that have that kind of thing going on in their work. I
1: have never thought of it purely as drag because I come at it as a songwriter, as a composer and lyricist. You know, Miss Hope Springs is a manifestation of the songs. It's not the other way around. I'm not writing songs for a comedy character that I created her to sing my work, you know, because I was writing for Liza Minnelli, I was writing for Barbara Streisand, I was writing for Bette Midler, couldn't get them to sing any of the songs. So I thought I will create my own diva to to sing my repertoire of material. And and that's what I've been doing for the last 10, 11 years in Crazy Cox. I've never done st- I mean, yes, when I did my very, very first show, Barbara, the, the Streisand, Miss Hope Springs Sing Streisand, obviously, I sung Streisand. But since probably 2006 or something, when I started, I did my first show in Brighton. I did a, a one-man musical about Joan Crawford called Portrait of Joan, which was the first thing I really did with my own material and, and, and singing and acting on stage. And since then, I've only ever, ever done my own material. And I have guarded carefully who I allow
0: to sing it. The person who springs to mind when you talk like that is someone else who was writing songs for other people to sing and they weren't singing them. So he created a character to do them, which was David Bowie, (laughs) who created Ziggy Stardust to sing his own songs because people wouldn't sing them. And then once he became famous as Ziggy Stardust and David Bowie, People wanted to sing his songs, but initially he struggled to get people to record them. So he created this alter ego, Ziggy Stardust, who in some ways is almost like a drag character. He was way
1: ahead of his time as far as, you know, cross-dressing or gender-neutral, gender neutral, gender fluidity. Um, and again, yeah, he was a big influence to me. Yeah. Aladdin insane was that song Cologne she, Cologne she Wore, Silver and AmeriCard. Lady Grinning Soul. A very dark, beautiful, romantic, almost classical, very classical in feel, that song, almost operatic. So yes, he, he certainly inspired me. I just thought, well, I, I never really considered what I do as anything out of the ordinary. It just seemed to be the way ahead. I was somewhat surprised by the fact that people thought it was sort of unusual or outrageous or difficult to comprehend, because coming from that era of performance artists, and I remember the the was it the Blue Lips, yes, Betty Bourne, and yeah. and and, and theatre that was like the Glasgow Citizens Theatre where nearly all the great female leads were played by men. And, of course, that's a theatrical uh, tradition that goes back to ancient Greek yeah. theatre. So, to me, it's just like, well, it's, this is completely a normal way of doing things. My interface is this, because it, com- it is tragedy, it is comedy. She's both those masks, isn't she, Miss Hayes The smiling one and the, the tragic grimacing one. And so for me, what better what better way to express the humour and the sadness that's within the songs than having a white face, a, a mask, you know, to wear, which is what I think I do.
0: I grew up watching Coronation Street in the glory years and I was obsessed with Bette Gilroy, Bette Lynch as was. And there's yes. a fabulous quote from that character where she says, that's not a smile; it's a lid on a scream. And I think of that line when I see Hope Springs. Oh, thank you. I, I take that as a compliment. It um, <laughs> yes, mentions one. Yeah, I love it. Yes, I love it. That's perfect.
1: The other artists that I'm inspired by. I don't know, if you want to move on to yeah, go ahead to the others that you know. Again, it's very much the the sense of storytelling which I do through my songs, and I think great songs do. It's all about storytelling. It's the golden age Hollywood girls, basically, starting with Greta Garbo, who I was obsessed with from the age of five or six. Used to watch, you you remember back in the day, they used to have a double bill on Saturday afternoon and a double bill on Sunday afternoons. Uh, wonderful, that's sometimes themed, you know, it would be the Betty Davis month and they'd show all her great movies as double bills. And it was a marvelous entertainment. I watched those with my mom and my dad. So that was my film education. And I would learn because my parents were in love with movies and Hollywood and the theater as much as I am. Um, And we'd watch Garbo, and my father would say, you know, this is what she's doing. And my mother would say, you know, it's all behind her eyes. And that's why she was one of the greatest movie stars, greatest screen actresses. And today, I mean, people may not know who she is. People who are listening may not, well, not know who she is. A lot of people these days say... It's before my time, as if that's an excuse not to know. Uh, The same with Dietrich, people go, oh, it's before my time. You you, want to know who these people are, especially if, if you're an LGBTQ plus person, because they were our sort of, I don't know, like talisman touchstones, you know, growing up. They somehow said something, maybe it's a bit of a cliche, but they were a touchstone. They made sense of a world that didn't make sense. You'd see Garbo and Crawford and Davis. You'd go, yeah, that makes sense to me. Whereas going down to Tesco and living, you know, going to school and and the normal life made very little sense.
0: Dietrich was, she was openly bisexual. And when she was told to tone it down when she came to Hollywood, she did the opposite and arrived looking like a really, really classic Butch Dyke with a kind of men's suit on and... There's that famous scene in one of the films where she kisses the woman on the mouth.
1: In Morocco, yeah. She comes back and hands her a flower and then she walks away and then she comes back and kisses her on the lips. That's also the fascination of Garbo. I mean, Garbo was a little before Dietrich and was similarly quite openly bisexual at a time when it really wasn't accepted and had a long affair with a, with, with a writer called Mercedes Acosta, who also dated Dietrich and everybody else. Any, any beauties, she, uh, she seduced them and, and, you know, she was famous for that. But uh, Garbo, I found the most fascinating. Part of why, I think, was like when she was 39, she retired was she 39 or 36? She she retired. She had one not great movie, which was Two-Faced Woman. And it was just, 19, it was 1939, I think. And it got bad reviews. The reviews said it's, it was worse than seeing her own grandmother drunk because she was dancing the Chica Chocca. I mean, she had been like this enigmatic siren in first and silent movies and then when she did um, Anna Christie, the, I think it was uh, O'Neill play, Eugene O'Neill, she spoke for the first time and had this amazing sort of gravelly Swedish accent. So she was saved from the, uh, the graveyard, which so many silent stars were. There was you know. the
0: slogan, wasn't there? Garbo Speaks. For Garbo that Talks, movie.
1: that's right. right. And then later when she did Ninochka, it was Garbo Laughs. <laughs> uh, I mean, Garbo was just anything she did. Everyone was fascinated. And she never married. And she was very... She would refer to herself as a man in... I mean, I've read everything there is to read In fact, I've written a, a, a movie script about her. The last years of her life when she's walking around in New York and she's retired from the screen. But she's walking around in New York, like the most high-profile recluse you know she didn't go and live in a hut in sweden she she was <laughs> up east 52nd street and walking the streets in her big hat with her sort of brown pants suit and an umbrella and when i lived in new york in the 80s I missed her, just missed her from a friend of mine that worked in a in a salon, and he's and I walked in and he said, "You just missed Garbo, you just missed Garbo. Oh. She just looked through the the shop window, and everyone went, "Oh my God, it's Garbo. Um, so she became sort of like a unicorn, um, trotting around New York, pretending she didn't want to be looked at. If she really didn't want to be looked at, I don't think she would have stayed in New York and walked the streets. Um, I think she was a she was a great artist. If you look at her work, her movie, her greatest roles like Camille, Ninotchka, um, they are just she's just a ravishing, and not only physically extraordinarily beautiful, but she does things that take your breath away. Um, it, it sort of, it gasps and and sighs that you just don't expect, and they just. Reveal an inner world, and it's as fresh today to watch her all these years later um as it is as it was then I think, and she was more natural than Dietrich. I love Dietrich Shanghai Express is one of my favorite movies i've written a musical of that so i i like I've got movie scripts and musicals and they're all sitting in a drawer, but Dietrich was more artificially beautiful. Her face was really constructed with those eyebrows that got thinner and higher and higher. I mean, she ended up looking like some kind of exotic beetle when they were like yeah. half tiny, thin little antennae drawn halfway up her forehead. Joseph von Sternberg was her love her and I think they married um, and, and direct her and taught her everything about lighting. And she had like a little silver line she put down the centre of her nose and she knew exactly where the, the angles were. There's a, there's a line um, she said, which I thought was funny, but it was a lighting cameraman said. She came to England um, and made a movie, I think in the early 40s, mid 40s, and she was working with a, a cameraman, lighting cameraman, who'd worked with her in Hollywood um, 20 years before. And she was filming this film, and when she saw the rushes, she, she said to him, I'm really not happy with the way you're lighting me and photographing me. I, I, you no, know, I'm just not happy with it. And he said, I'm awfully sorry. It must be because I'm 20 years older, <laughs> rather than saying she was 20 years old. <laughs> Uh, there's a fascinating documentary about Dietrich. Have uh, you seen that with Maximilian Schell, uh, where it's mainly audio? He goes and talks to her in her apartment, and no, I haven't seen that. Oh, it's mar- It's a documentary that he made, uh, he had permission. They were friends. She wouldn't let him film her, but she talked, and she knows she does his quatsch. That's kids, She'd say, and it's not in the contract, and. Um, and she hated Meryl Streep. She would cut out pictures Shame. of Meryl Streep and, and write things like, ugly, so ugly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, these people don't get where they get by being, you know, sh- sugar and spice and all things nice. You know, they, they're they full yeah. of resentments and competition and, and uh, petty slights and things like that. But fascinating, that whole bunch. I mean, Joan Crawford going through again from the 20s, right through to the 70s, making movies. And a wonderful artist and a beautiful, beautiful face. Though she became a bit of a, a mask of herself towards the end but Betty Davis, I can watch these people endlessly. The whole Hollywood thing, which I was lucky enough as a child to experience going out to Hollywood when my dad made Camelot in the 60s, and we all moved out there a lot, stock and barrel, and Fred Astaire would come to the house, and uh, you know, extraordinary times. I was swimming, went swimming with Franco Nero, Maurice Chevalier sang to me when I, you know, the Chateau Marmont Hotel. I was lucky enough to actually literally experience Golden Age Hollywood, with the tail end of it as a, as a little boy. I was six, seven, Eight. Oh my God. It was about two years. I went to the Beverly Hills Catholic School. Seven, eight, I think I was, yeah.
0: That must have been uh, amazing. And such an important age as well, in terms of how you're starting to view the world and socialise. Yes, extraordinary. I mean, we, we lived on 809 North Camden Drive, which had been
1: Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn's love nest when they were having their long, fam- you know, their famous long, long affair relationship. And uh, it was in our lease that we had to let Miss Hepburn swim in our pool. And she would <laughs> she would come and swim in our pool in the mornings. It was glamorous. And we lived in Beaconsfield, and we, my parents dug a kidney-shaped pool. We had a pool there too. I think probably after we came back from Hollywood, they were, like, trying to keep up the, the glamorous life. And Wendy Hiller would come and swim in our pool there. So the great British actress, Dame Wendy Hiller. So, you know, it's not surprising I'm a bit peculiar.
0: One of the things I'm really interested in about some of the women you've mentioned is those actresses who managed to make the transition from silent film to talkies. Well, that
1: was a learning curve, I think, for everybody involved because it didn't necessarily work. Joan Crawford was horrified when she heard herself first uh, on her first talking role. She said, oh, my God, I sound like a man. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and I'm fascinated by Joan Crawford. As I said, I did my first theater piece, which was a, an original one-man musical about Joan Crawford that I did. And I'm just fascinated by her story of, you know, growing up in the Dust Bowl, uh, in the Midwest, you know, in in Texas, and no money abused by her stepfathers, put to work by her mother at a very early age, you know, to pay her school fees. She she cleaned the school and fed the school children like twice a day, three times a day. She cooked for everybody. So she grew, really had a tough upbringing. And she, she said she got her education when she got to Hollywood and started reading the scripts and finding out what the words meant in the scripts and understanding the words, what they meant, because she'd had no real education. And I like her, I, I, you know, there is this monstrous vision of Joan where she's sort of become a a Halloween costume rather than a person. I think feud addressed that pretty well with yeah, the, Jessica Lang and Susan Sarandon. I think that was I was far better as Joan Crawford, I have to say, than Jessica Lange was, but you know, I don't want to split hairs. Um so and 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 Betty Davis, you know, that feud between them how real it was. I did a, a talk uh, in Brighton there, there's a, a regular event that goes on and I did a talk called Feud, what Feud? This was before the TV drama was done. Because I, having researched Crawford in such depth and knowing that it was Crawford who went to Betty Davis with whatever happened to Baby Jane's script and saying, I think we should do this together, and when you see photographs of them on set together laughing and you think how much of it was a construct, how much of it was a very clever PR stunt yeah. that they thought, let's just be bitches about each other. And it served them well. I mean, we're still talking about it. But I don't know how... I, I think they were sisters under the skin really
0: my first joan crawford film was baby jane when i was a teenager and then years later i did a bachelor of arts then i did a masters in drama and film and on the film course we studied so-called women's pictures and one of them was mildred pierce and it completely changed my whole perception of joan crawford as a star and as an actor because that's an extraordinary performance in mildred pierce that she gave it was a
1: perfect meeting of, of subject matter and screen persona, and also after that sudden fear have you seen sudden fear yes, yeah with Jack Palance? yeah which is and she's absolutely brilliant she was nominated for that as well, and then I don't know there comes a point where it all goes tits up <laughs> for all of them really, because they all ended up doing not Dietrich, but tolu the Bankhead was another one, they all ended up doing these hagsploitation movies, where they're making horror films and playing the scary lady in the attic uh on the serial killing um religious fanatic, whatever it is, but that's where it heads after a certain point. I love a good hack exploitation movie, but it's sad. I think Garbo did the right thing she she did try to come back. She did screen tests, and people probably know this, so she she did submit to doing screen tests. This was like the world's biggest movie star at one point, with the biggest salary at one point, an absolute icon. You know, garbomaniacs, they're called, I'm a garbomaniac, because I'm obsessed with her still. And she left. She was asked to do these screen tests for an Italian Producer to do a movie with James Mason called, I think it's pronounced La Duchesse de Langeais, which I think is a Balzac novel. And she submitted this cute, iconic star to doing screen tests because she wanted to do it. And she had James Wong Howe and a couple of other top, top cinematographers do the, they, you can see them on YouTube, they were lost. Some guy found them in his garage in in, in LA, I think, in, in the 90s, but they had been considered to be lost. And they're the silent screen tests. And she's beautifully lit with a little bit of a wind machine, and she's going through the gamut of emotions and with her face. In fact, I, I did a tribute to that. Ben Walters, you know, Ben Walters. He showed it for quite a while on his cinema experience of queer stuff. And he showed my my Garbo trailer. Somebody said I looked like Joan Van Ark who'd been in a terrible fire. So <laughs> um, again I thought it was quite a compliment. But um I tried to recreate that. The the what she was doing, which is all these fleeting images on her face, which is just so brilliant at just like flickering over her face, all the smiles, a little sadness, a little Tragic, um, and then laughing herself, putting her hands through her hair, and that's the last we see of Garbo. In fact, the very last we see of Garbo is in a gay porn film. Get your head around that, it was called Adam and Eve, but Eve spelled Y V E S. So, um, there's a they're shooting the porn film in the 70s, and they film out of the window, Garbo is in the street, and they film her walking by. And that's in the movie. <laughs> it's an extraordinary thing, but it's true. And it's kind of, I think Garbo would probably like it. She always referred to herself, as I said, as the man. She would say, I've got to go, I've got to shave my stubs for it. like." Like, she's saying that she's got to go and shave her face, shave her legs, and she'd say, oh, you know, it's no place for a young man like me to be, or... She would refer to herself as a man most of the time, uh, which is interesting, you know? She dressed like a man most of the time. She had relationships with women more than she did with men from what we know. So maybe she was trans. She did say in one of the books, it says, when I was born, they didn't know if I was a boy or a girl, which is an interesting thing to know. say about herself. So maybe there was some gender thing going on, intersex or something. It's an interesting
0: theory. How much do you think this group of sort of Hollywood Golden Age actresses, how influential were they on you as a person and as an artist?
1: I think, I think as you can see, I'm, to, I'm obsessed. I'm obsessed with performance, I suppose. So film, stage... And then the last section was singers, female singers mostly, of the sort of sixties and seventies, uh especially, sort of um so they're all hugely influential. I think because they touched something within me that the rest of the world didn't it awoke something in me, it something resonated. It but that's what all art does and and especially the art we love, that moves us, that makes us laugh or cry. is because it, it, it reflects something within us. And we, we go, oh, I see it. I feel better because I see it outside of myself. I feel seen, I feel understood. Um, I feel represented. I feel uh, that I'm not alone. And I think as a little boy growing up in, in Gerard's Cross, um, feeling very isolated, and knowing that I was very, very different. uh, And hiding that, having to hide that from my family, uh, sort of felt rather persecuted because I had to hide it from my father, from my mother, from my sisters. And they were out to get me. (laughs) I mean, it's taken me many years to be able to talk about it. Um, And watching Garbo, Dietrich, Crawford, Davis, and then into the musicals with Judy Garland and all those wonderful Fox musicals and MGM musicals. It was a, a world that I rather fancied myself living in. If I could have stepped into the TV screen and never come back, I would have been quite happy. But, you know, that I had the piano in one end of the house and I used to I'd be playing the piano and writing music, writing songs, even at a very early age, I started writing, when I was five or six on a piano, American friends left in our potting shed. And that was where I went for respite, for sanity, for peace, for, to create and to get lost in that world. And when I wasn't doing that, I was poring over movie style books. I still got them in, in you know, my house here. All the MGM books, all John Cabal books of Hollywood portraits actually dated him for a while later, which was fascinating. He loved that I knew everybody. You know, John John Cabal was, uh, I think he worked in, in in accounting in in the 60s in America and he was working for studios and he would go to all the big studios to do these accountings or whatever he was doing. And they would be throwing out all the old stills and negatives of Garbo, Dietrich, Crawford, Davis. And he said, I'll take them. And he went around taking them and saving them. And if you look at any coffee table book of movie star portraits, it will say from the Cabell collection. And I knew him and he was fascinated that I knew who everybody was because I'd been fascinated as a, as a kid.
0: Going back to what you said earlier about Hope being the vehicle for the songs and not the other way round, how much of you goes into Hope? Is there a lot of you in her as well? Absolutely. I mean, she
1: is autobiographical. You know, they say, write what you know. And I write. I write for women, mostly anyway. But I write, have written, created a female persona because I always felt, well, I never really felt, like a man i used to dress up like a man and go around in the 80s to you know i was quite a hot man i was a successful male model you know in, in new york and paris and did all that but that was drag too you know the the, the five ones and the dr martin boots and the and the leather jacket with the puffer jacket over it you know with my shaved head and a cap on and walking my staffy people you know would, terrified of me I looked like a thug until they walked past and I was singing sort of the man that got away or something
0: (laughs) that's Um, gonna be our teaser quote (laughs) so that
1: was that was all drag and fun and then I had to to really it's not it's not a put on it's not fake what I do and you know that from seeing it it is a real thing it's authentic it's it's not it's not a grotesque caricature of women, it's a detailed line drawing. You know, I think you said it is a fully formed character and that character is somebody I know very well because it's me. Like David Bowie, I've had to put a mask on to be able to really express who I really am because I think growing up, I was, it was not okay to be who I was. These days, you know, hopefully, families, friends, schools would say this is this is a gender-fluid person and not have made me do rugby in the freezing cold and made me do boxing lessons, but I had to do boxing lessons because my father wanted me to sort of toughen up. So I had to, like, a boarding school, I had to do these horrendous boxing lessons where I had to punch people in the face and get punched in the face back. Just, Absolutely horrendous. So it's taken me a long time. I didn't actually do, start doing this Hope Springs, and really until, as I said, sort of 10, 12 years ago. So it's a very late start, and uh, I'm very grateful for what I've managed to achieve, which I'd started a long, long time before.
0: But has it been for you a sort of healing thing to do, to be able to express yourself through this character? Definitely. Back to feeling seen, feeling
1: heard. I'm not very good in public, as myself. I'm quite shy, very shy, really. I'm all right one-on-one, maybe with another two people. I'm fine talking to you here, but I don't like to go out. I don't go to the theatre, and I don't go to see as many cabaret things as I should do, because I just feel so uncomfortable. But when I'm Miss Hope Springs, even socially, if I were to hang out, as Miss brings, it's a whole different thing, which is extraordinary. I feel much, much more comfortable, more empowered, more in my body and my mind when I'm hope. So it's something that I've thought about and it just is what it is. It is what it is. I'm quite happy to be a sort of
0: shapeshifter. That's brilliant. I'm so happy that we're going to be working together because you're going to be appearing at Polari at Heaven and also at Bath in May. So I'm really excited about Thank it. Thank you so
1: much for in- inviting me. I feel welcomed into the, the glittering world of the literality.
0: Thank you so much for talking to me. I've really, really enjoyed talking to you. It's been really, really interesting. I was worried I would
1: might just talk a load of old drivel, but... If you're happy, for... I'm happy, I'm happy. Thank you, Paul. Thank you so much for talking to me. Thanks.
0: My thanks to Ty for being such a great guest. And to find out more about him and his work, please visit his website, misshopesprings.com. This has been We Can Be Heroes with Paul Burston. Please subscribe and join me next time. Thanks for listening.